Welcome to Healthy Options. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and my guest here today is uh, Alexandra Merrill. She's been working with Women's Group Process for over 40 years. She's in has been instrumental in devising programs for women's leadership development and training, and she works with diverse groups of women, and she's been doing this in the United States, Europe, and South Asia. She's been recognized as a leader in the Maine world by the Maine Women's Fund for her work in Maine as at the grassroots level, and she consults with several leadership collaborations presently, and I'm very happy that she has agreed to join us here today on Healthy Options. Welcome. Thank you, Rhonda. Sandra, thank you. So let's start really at, at the very beginning where uh, we're talking about a group process. And uh, what, what does that mean? What, 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 do you, what do we mean when we talk about group process? And how would that be relevant to our listeners right now? Well, if I'm to start at the beginning with that question, I have to go to my family dinner table where there was a content the surface, what was on top of the table, and then there was a process, which was everything else that wasn't being said. And then I'll go to grade school and high school and so on. And in any given classroom situation, there was a content that had to be mastered, and then there was usually a process which was being made invisible. So we're sort of dealing with what's, what's surfacy. What's or on what's the obvious, what's being named. That's right. And then we're also dealing with what's not being named. One so. way or another, we're dealing with what's not being named. We might be dealing with what's not being named in a nonverbal way. That's all a body language, the way we smell, the way we look at each other, the way we don't, the way we pretend we're not looking at each other. That's as much a language as it is a process and a content. So when we're doing social interaction, when we're talking right now or when we go into a new situation, a new work group or a school group or whatever, mm-hmm. we're dealing with what we've been taught. Would we call this socialization or is yeah. that a whole different idea? No, we're all socialized, especially as a community of women, to behave in certain ways. So... What we're saying is that there are things that are obvious. So if we look at the 1950s, for instance, and we have this idea of uh, what a woman is supposed to be like. And, we, and I use that model because I think it's pretty obvious from the 50s, you know, women stays at home, she raises the children. That is a role for women. Now here we are in 2007, and we have a different idea of what a role for women is. So do these ideas change? How do, I mean, it sounds like they're changing, but what? I think it's a mistake to generalize in talking about women without also <clears throat> practically in the same breath acknowledging the differences of race, class, caste, age, all the different abilities, sexual orientation and preference, because inside the huge collective, and I th- I'm thinking globally now, inside this sameness, there's an infinity of difference. So I don't quite sit easily with making broad generalizations in the context of my work, at least, mm-hmm. which ultimately has been about 
acknowledging the sameness as a globally oppressed group, the largest one possibly, women, while at the same time magnifying and intensifying our understanding of the differences that there are between us, visible and invisible differences between us. So here we are, sitting at the, our, our dinner table with our family, and in that ordinary experience, we're also on this other level mm-hmm. experiencing an entire global and cultural phenomenon in mm-hmm. a way. I think so. And so that informs us in our day-to-day lives as women and men in, in, this, in the world in terms of how we talk to each other and how we communicate. Is that... I'm, I'm, I think so. That's where this interest in uh, the tension between the explicit process and content and the implicit process and content came awake in me at the family dinner table. Yeah. Because I could see one thing going on with my own eyes, but my body, the rest of me, would always feel there's something else going on here. And uh, I don't know how to talk about it. And uh, I would take these feelings away from the table and ponder them mightily in my heart, in my room probably, and wish there were a place I could talk with some other people about what, what does all that mean? Why are we saying one thing and feeling another and behaving this way and I can see that they're feeling that way, like that? So like a, a, a little kid saying, wait a minute. I, I th- do you think that there's a pureness? Do you think that little kids get it? Yeah, I think, well, I watched my kids and now my grandkids, they're just truth tellers. They see what's going on, and they call it like they see it. So they don't have the uh, filtering system laid in by the dominant culture education, I think. So that's what happens. You go to school. And you learn to filter your raw experience and produce behaviors that are socially acceptable because you want to belong. And if you're a girl, child, anywhere... I dare say that generalization. If you're a girl child anywhere, there are certain behaviors that will get you in trouble and there are certain that keep you safe. So you learn to be safe because you want to survive. And what does that mean about how then we live in the world? Which we? As women, Uh as men and women in the Uh world. If there is that level of... What's the word? Uh, if there are th- these many different levels going on, how do we function? How do we stay authentic uh-huh. in the face of, of Well, I, I cannot talk about a man's experience because I haven't been one in this life. So anything I know now, I know because I'm wearing a woman's body in this life. And my perception is purely a result of my sex, my birth sex, my gender by social assignment, and the rest of my prejudices which I have learned 
as a result of my socialization, and finally, I think, as a result of the deconstruction of that socialization, to, uh, which helps me see a little more clearly on uh, the matters of privilege, earned and unearned privilege that I bring with me. And now I forget what I was saying. <laughs> but, but that's that's good. No, it's good. We, we all do. It's all part I was of our. In the middle this of is some live rant. radio. Welcome, welcome to the world of radio. Um, it really important. Um, I, I think we come from, and I think I'm bringing this up. People might say, "Well, why why are we having this conversation on healthy options?" And I think the reason is, and the reason I asked you is because it seems to me that some of the uh, dynamic that you've just been describing how we're socialized, how we learn things, what we, we know what the truth is and we're not speaking the truth necessarily, actually affects what's happening inside of our bodies. So mm-hmm. if we're living with that tension, and mm-hmm. some of them are little and some of them are big, mm-hmm. if we're living with that tension, that there is a, a biochemical mm-hmm. response to that. Mm-hmm. And in your work, since you do have probably sat with more groups and more women and women's groups than than anyone I know. Um, how do you see that playing out in terms of health and dynamic health of, of the individual as part of the... You mean larger? dynamic health of an individual woman in a particular group at a particular moment in yeah. time? How do I see that playing out? Well, I'll start with myself because... I live inside of me. I know, for instance, that when my palms start to sweat and my mouth is going along on some thought line, there's a dissonance between the fluidity of my thinking and the, the water that's coming up in my palms. So that's a sign to me that I'm having a secondary process, something else is going on under the surface. Or my, uh, my voice will get breathy because I'm breathing shallow. That probably means something to me that I have to decode, especially if I'm sitting in the leadership position. If I have the blessing of being a member in that group, then I don't have to sort myself out. But I'd say I'm a more interesting member if I do pay attention to the subtle body messages that are impacting on my participation in the group or the messages that I'm internalizing and unaware am silencing myself, shutting myself down, in which case I start to yawn and my eyes get heavy. And uh, then my mind wanders and Suddenly I'm 30 years ago somewhere else, and I actually have to haul myself back into real time. Or someone will ask me, are you wool gathering again? (laughs) And uh, I remember that's what they used to say to me when I stared out the window in the classroom. She's wool gathering again. Probably nowadays I was wool gathering because I was boring myself in the classroom because no one was paying attention to the stuff that was going on underneath. So I checked out into some la-la land, which was much more interesting to me than whatever was going on there that I was supposed to be learning. That's really interesting 
that, that you say that because especially in a school setting where we have a lot of kids being labeled as mm-hmm. um, attention deficit yeah. or some sort of troubled emotional mm-hmm. and it's so easy to label and women as well, the hysterical woman, you know, all of those great stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that a lot of that really has to do with this split between what we know is going on and, or somewhere, even if we can't speak it, and uh, what we're supposed to be doing? Yes, I do. I think probably most of us have an internally authentic experience of the moment at any given moment. And the question is whether I or you or she has her own permission to articulate her experience. And then secondly, is she in a context, a social construct in which it's safe for her to let someone else know that she knows something? And if it's safe, then uh, is it also a group situation which is not going to gang up on her for knowing what she knows? I think this is the point at which the complex relational field has to be talked about. It's the connection between my experience of my internal knowing, my relationship with you, our relationship with these others, and then the system we're in at the moment. Where is there safety in there for me to tell the truth of what I know? Let's let that sit for a minute because we, I think to survive, and we talked about that at the very beginning, to survive we do make accommodations in some ways. Definitely. We have to. Yet, how, you know, then we hear about people and women in particular being an impetus for really shifting what is acceptable and what is safe. Mm -hmm. So I'm very curious about how that happens. Mm-hmm. Where in the system, and we're talking about a social dynamic, a systems, mm-hmm. systems level, how we, how we talk to each other and how we react and relate to each other, what is that impetus that makes someone be courageous enough mm-hmm. to then say, wait a minute? Reminds me of a teacher I had. Bless her. She's no longer here. She hasn't been here for a long time, but I'm going to tell you this little story because it's a, it's a great little teaching parable. I was very invested at 16 in failing classes. It was a way to make them interesting, was to work hard to fail them. <laughs> so I'd gotten very good. I was excelling at failing. <laughs> and this was a geometry class. I adored the teacher. I had a fierce crush on her, actually. And uh, my contract with myself was to flunk the course because that's what was making me happy at that time. And it was my third round of 11th grade. And uh, we came to the exam time. And I sat, the exam was in the chemistry room. I sat in front of one of those Benson burners. And her beady eyes were on me. And I watched her watching me. I was a little nervous because I was working at doing the, what do you call them, theorems, proofs, geometry proofs wrong. Because <laughs> I, I did know how to do it, but I had to write them wrong. And uh, the exam was over. Everybody else left, and she 
grabbed me by my shirt collar and said, you come back here and you sit right down here. I will not allow you to fail this exam. You know enough to get a B minus. You will stay through lunch and I will sit here and watch you get a B minus. Miss Carolyn G. Goodwin sat there with me during the lunch period, and then she said, now I'm going to grade your test. I said, I'm going to be late to gym or something. (laughs) And she said, that doesn't matter. I'm going to be grading your test now. And she showed me I got a B minus. She proved it to me that I knew enough to get a B minus. Then she said, you can go now. And she put her uh, finger right here between my eyes, and she said, now don't you ever play stupid again. So why do I tell that? It's such a moment of being seen and called out and held accountable for the knowing that you don't dare express. In that case, it was geometry, but seems to me to be finally the necessity for a young girl or an older woman or any woman who's somewhat uh, separate from her trust in her own knowing to have someone outside her. If that's an individual in a group or the group itself, doesn't really matter. It's that someone sees that you know and tells you that she sees you. Mm. So how's that for a story? That's a very good story. So did, did you, you got it? You took it to I heart? did get it. I stopped flunking and had to confess to myself that it was a game and figure out why I played it. But my, my learning went uh, in a better direction after that. And I, I've never forgotten It was probably the most powerful teaching intervention a teacher ever made in my life. has a lot to do with why I became a teacher, I think. So you brought this into the classroom, some of this knowing, in your first part of your career. Yeah, I went straight from graduate school into a pretty tough public junior high school wildness in the early 60s. And so you were, how were you, uh, were you approaching the classroom differently than you, than how you were taught to in, in teaching yeah. school? Yeah, I was more interested in process than content. Uh, it got me in a lot of trouble because uh, I digressed. And I would talk, I needed to talk about what was going on with the kids and that wasn't in the lesson plan. So there was always a tension, especially in the public system, between being a teacher who works with the process and a teacher who's focused on the content and teaching to the exams. Then eventually I was was in public high school for a while, and I was in independent school, day schools, then I was in mixed-gender independent boarding schools for a while. And along the way, I got more interested in process than content, and more interested in adult education than secondary school. So I left the uh, 
school system per se and started doing the work I've been doing here. So what happens when um, uh, someone comes to one of some of the groups that you lead? Now, I imagine that there's also a self-selection process. We call them women leadership groups yeah. uh, or something like that. What, what does that mean? I'm not sure what your question is. Well, the question is, what is a women's leadership group, and what, what happens when you come, to, you come to the group and you're working on, on the process? Uh-huh. Um, there are probably as many definitions of what a woman's leadership group is as there are leaders of one. So again, I'll go backwards to why I got interested in uh, figuring out women's group process. There's the field of applied behavioral science, relatively new, maybe started in the 50s in the West, in the white world in any case, white academic world, which is where I was studying being white and academic. And I noticed that in all the theories that were being written, which were written by white males, the narrative was about groups which were mixed gender but they didn't make any reference to the women in the groups or to the gender construct that was powering that group dynamic that they were studying. That's when I became interested, that was in the 50s, in uh, who are we and how do we behave and what is our process if we are an all-female system. Is there something... That some way that we behave, that we do ourselves with each other when we're alone together, that is different from the way group process is articulated by those mostly white males. I'm not aware of any organizational development group process theory in this moment, if I am, I forget it, that was written by non-whites in those days. Now there's a lot. But in those days, that's the way it was, in my neck of the universe, which is what I said it was, white, Western, mm-hmm. academic. Yeah. So that's when I began to look at the relationship between what's going on in a women's group process and how can we train, educate women to become leaders in the context of our own sex and gender groups. How do we talk about becoming a leader and knowing what we know and standing for what we know and helping others learn what they know and then show up out there in the world as activists? How can we uh, find a group process theory and some behaviors that really help us rather than feel like something that's imported from another culture? So what have you discovered? What, what makes... What, how, do we, how do we do that? Wow, I wish I had the, a quick answer popping to no my quick. mouth, but I don't. Say the question again. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'm, I think what I'm asking is, um, 
Oh, and by the way, I should say that we are speaking with Alexandra Merrill, who has been working with Women's Group Process uh, for over 40 years and um, is uh, developed, has developed, and works in women's leadership development and training groups and is a consultant about these kinds of processes. And uh, this is Rhonda Feynman, and we are listening uh, to health. You are listening to Healthy Options on WERU. So I'm going to rephrase the question. Okay. Um, I guess what what I'm trying to say is what makes we've been. Let me let me let me rephrase what I was just about to say. Um, we had um, at earlier um, when we were speaking, we were discussing about the kitchen table, and we we're discussing about socially constructed reality. We're talking about what we learn to survive in the world as women, as as, as humans, as human beings. And now we're getting into the idea of how do we bring that into a, pro- a group process, or how do we bring that into a way that we then are more true to ourselves and are able to be activists and to be able to bring that truth and clarity out into the world. And my question to you was, so I'm, if, if I'm in a group process, what with other women, what are the pitfalls? What are the, uh, the positives? What is, the, uh, what is the, the messy areas between women in large and small groups? What, what is it that we have to work with that gets in our way of, of being, speaking our truth and being our strong, dynamic selves? Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to talk about a continuum which has at one extreme my experience, your experience, any woman's experience of growing her body inside her mother's womb. That is the first experience in this world, on this side, so to speak. That's one way we learned something and then on the other end of the continuum the phenomenon of global misogyny that force which causes a woman to turn against herself because she was born a woman of a woman that's the continuum now, tell me your question again, now that I've laid out the continuum. This is a good continuum, and this is very <laughs> helpful to clarify the question, which really is, so on that continuum, what are the pitfalls? What keeps us, mm-hmm. what keeps us stuck? What keeps uh, as a... Okay, yes. I think there are some very tightly held secrets that are part of a global collusion, perhaps, or at least that's my fantasy. The secrets have to do with what actually went on in utero between you and the woman through whose body you grew your body. One of the secrets might be that, as far as we know, when you settled in her and decided you were going to grow your body there for nine months, For six or eight weeks, you were female like her. And so were all the other humans who were starting. We were all female at the beginning. Because that sex differentiation didn't happen for six or eight weeks. Now that's a tightly held secret. What we know 
in our bodies, we knew when we began to be began to grow a human body, and we knew that the beginning is female. So there's a lot of power hiding in that little fact. I think it's Mary Jane Sherfy's research, The Politics of Female Sexuality. It may, might be 30 years old of research. I'm not sure I forget how long. But that's one of the secrets, that there is a mother line. Some of the religions talk about the mother line. Like the religion comes through on the mother's line. That thought isn't so separate from this biological thought. Then, during the de- that development of yourself as you grew your body, your body gets bigger and stronger and more and more growth spurts going on, and after a while you get too big to stay in there much longer, and you're ready to get out. Well, the process of getting out of coming out, the original coming out of the mother's body, that process is probably the most highly collaborative and conflictual intensity of an energetic vortex that you will ever experience. It's the most intimate, the most erotic probably, the most highly sexual, the most uh, painful and rigorous ordeal for both women. So, embedded in that secret, from my perspective, is the capacity to endure enormous amounts of tension in the service of growth and in the service of life. And it is 100% collaborative. There is no way, in my book, after sitting in, what, 30,000 hours of women's groups, there's no way for me not to know that a woman's group is ultimately the collaborative container. It's that intense. And it does trigger in us, I think, those early memories. They're here the whole time, the intrauterine experience and the uh, experience, the events around being born. This has nothing to do with whether you have born children. This has to do with the fact that you were born and that you were born a woman and you came through a woman and you survived that birth. Now I've lost my thread again. No, you're doing great. So here we are with the, when you gave us that continuum mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. just oh, being born and getting and my thread back. Yeah. So most places on the planet, as far as I know, when the girl baby comes out, there's a pink blanket in some cultures, but there's usually some either celebration or lamentation about the sex gender of that baby. Usually it's better to be born a boy than it is to be born a girl. Those are the laws of primogeniture. If the firstborn is a girl in so many places, she goes down the well, even now. Or with amniocentesis, if uh, the pregnancy is a girl, she's removed. These are signs of global misogyny at the personal level. So uh, immediately upon arrival, 
the social construct, the laws of culture kick in, and whatever is the law of nature of that girl-child, the law which has just survived, and a most amazing, intimate demonstration of strength, competence, and power, and authority, female authority, at its maximal, is the interaction between a mother and an infant during the birth process. What is more powerful? And uh, quickly, that story disappears Mm -hmm. in the girl-child's life. And she gets taken by the laws of culture when the laws of her nature have shown her how strong she is to to have come through. That would be true for a boy, too, but... I I haven't heard much about how boys talk about that. Yeah, so again it's where I reached the great divide in my career to stop looking at boys' experience, boys and men's experience and pay attention to girls and women. So bringing that into the group context then any new group has to get born. And any new group of women has an energetic quality to it which is similar to a uterine container. It has to be a safe container. It has to be a place which is going to be uh, safe enough for this woman who's coming into it to feel that she can grow here, that she can flex as much as she needs to, that she's going to be well fed, and that the container itself is strong enough to accept her in her fullness the way her mom was when she came through her mom. So immediately the women's group activates the the cellular memory scripts regardless of what the birthing story was. It's here in that oval or circle that is constellated by this body of women. So it's a body politic at that point. That's a a group body whose dynamics uh, are very unique unto itself. And I I stopped uh, calling a women's group it quite a long time ago. I refer to the woman's group as she because she is who she is. She is not neuter, and to neutralize, to use that uh, it on a woman's group is to unsex her and ungender her. So I don't like to slip and neuter her. It's a similar feeling to uh, fixing. It's that verb we use, fix fix the female dogs. Let's have them fixed. Hmm. it's not a language that works for me in the context of trying to work towards recovering from global misogyny yes that's i'm being very long-winded ask me some other questions no that's a good question that's a good answer it it assumes that there's something broken so uh so here we are we're we're in that dynamic and within that container Mm -hmm. within that structure that breathable Everything is there. Mm-hmm. So you're with your sister and your brother and your father and your mother and, and the global consciousness and the big mind and the small mind. It's all 
you know, you're confronting and you're also moving away from, it, it's, all, it's all there. Yeah. And so I would think that there would be a lot of, uh, a lot of passion, emotion, and, uh, and every, every level yes, of it. Yes, a huge amount of emotional turbulence activates itself as a woman's group process begins. Whether there's a content that has to be accomplished or not, I have come to believe. Say it's the school board, and it happens to be all women. Say it's uh, the dump committee. Say (laughs) it's a political organizing group, uh, pro-life or pro-choice group. doesn't really matter. Whatever the explicit content is, these dynamics are activated underneath if the group is an all-female system. That all-female system, she will have her way with the group content in terms of how the work gets done. So how does that work in, in is there competition, is there, we talked about a, a phrase recently, what, what did we call it? Uh, Compassionate competition? What, have you, what was the... Competence-based competent, competence competition. Based. Mm. That's a very interesting idea. Yeah, that your job is to become competent at being fully who you are, and mine is to become competent at being fully who I am so that we can be competent together to change what's wrong out there in our world, especially on the matter of female authority and our politics as activists. We so, have to run, learn to run together. That means we have to undo a lot of old patterning around jealousy and envy and rivalry and competition and taking each other down rather than helping each other stand. And those become the critical dynamics in a process-oriented all-female group and in a leadership training model where the, our only content is our own process. That's, that's where I came into the river and decided to focus. Leadership training as uh, a way to understand these complex dynamics among and between women when we're alone together. If we can change our understanding here, then we can change something out there and stop taking each other down and ganging up on each other and doing cliques and shutting each other out and getting angry at someone. She thinks she's too big. What? Who does she think she is? She's too big for her britches. And look at those clothes. And yeah, 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 yeah. That's the kind of behavior that has to be interrupted globally, where women are taking each other down. Especially our very strong women. We go after them in ways that are lethal, I think, and then we pretend we don't. So I thought it would be good to create learning circles where we could deconstruct these politics and go back to the law of nature, because the politics are laws of culture. Go back to laws of nature where there's a pretty fundamental benevolence where we're all competent. You know, you don't... uh, see an iris waging war on the violets. You don't see the oak and the ivy arguing. 
you do see plagues. You see tsunamis. You see all the violence possible in the law of nature. Somehow it's not vindictive. It's not contaminated with cultural fear of women, global misogyny. So that's an extraordinary idea that, um, and I think reality, that, uh, that as, as women, as human beings, as we understand how we take each other down, if we understand that the, the, a lot of the suffering and the conflict is really self-imposed, mm-hmm. in response or in service mm-hmm. to maintaining a cultural perspective that was not created by us. Right. You just go back to your own moment of your own birth and the labor that you experienced with your mother coming through her. That is such a demonstration of brilliance and competence and power and passion and intimacy. That is such a great model. It's the way to get into being a human. It's, it's the only way in so far is to come through that mother. I know we might be getting Petri dishes, but I hope not. Well, no, I don't hope not. I think that's a good way for some humans to come in. might be one of the great blessings these days because <laughs> there are plenty of really good parents who have trouble getting humans in here. They can come in that alternative way. It's as good as any. We'll hear from them someday, from those babies. But the law of nature has a very benevolent competition competence model in it. I'm losing my thread again. This is the third thread I've lost. No, yeah, but no, but actually, uh, you're we're we're right on track. Are we? Unless I've lost my thread with you, and then, and who knows out there, somebody will be calling and, and telling us what the thread is, but. Or maybe this is just the way it is because uh, like this in is Asian, the way we are. it's yin and yang. Things come mm-hmm. and go and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and come into each other and intertwine and we're weaving. Yeah. So the thread gets pulled and, and, and moved again. So here we are. I, I think the, I'm really back to this idea of this continuum of that powerful idea of the birth and to that other level, that other end of misogyny, of and where we... we why implode. are we why is it how how did it happen that we became the lesser and the inferior and was it that we were so powerful is it that that first mother is so ultimately powerful is it that that power to bring change through in the form of a you or me is that power so awesome that the law that power in the law of nature is it so awesome and awe inspiring that the laws of culture had to somehow balance that or create another pattern 
the father-in-law. Between the mother-in-law and the father-in-law, how would there become a balance? I don't know if we have it yet. I guess we don't have it, but we're talking about it differently. I feel pretty optimistic, actually, about the quality of change that's happening on the planet when I look at how many more women are coming into positions of power in, in countries and leading the social justice work. We're getting stronger. I see this as a almost I, I'm, I'm having images of mythical mm-hmm. battles going on. It, it's so interesting that I'm landing on this. Here we are discussing healthy options, and we're talking about how living this dichotomy, living in that tension without mm-hmm. really understanding this, how we are creating tension in our own bodies. Mm-hmm. And what is the mythical what what is what is mythical that we're fighting our own demons that you know large monsters are coming and and in order to be enlightened and to get to the other side we must spend the night with them and struggle and you know and do this and i i feel that that that's in in a way what we're uh, what we're about and what we're doing <laughs> my dad who was uh not really a feminist not a mythological figure at all He's a basic dad with all the good stuff and bad stuff of being a dad. One thing I always remember him telling me when I would complain to him about how hard my life was, he would say, well, dearie, that's the planet tax. (laughs) (laughs) And I really never understood him until I started thinking about all this stuff about women's group process. The planet tax, I conclude, is the price we pay for wearing a human body because it comes with its own tax. Yeah. And this has nothing to do with mythology. This is on the on the smallest level. So you were going you were talking about big mythic patterns. And I'm just remembering him telling me that every day has its tax (laughs) and I have to pay it and I'm going to be paying my tax until I take my last breath and somehow that was that is very comforting to me it's another continuum really from the uh, ordinariness of everyday struggle to the big mythic pattern that you were just drawing there I love that image, that just being is enough, almost. Just being is enough. You are already enough. He used to say that to me, too. You are already enough. Now, I wouldn't call him a feminist. That wouldn't have been in his vocabulary. But those are the words I needed to hear in the same way that I heard those words from Carolyn Goodwin, God bless her. Your teacher. Uh, yeah, my teacher. Don't you ever play stupid again. And then this other message, you are already enough. I think messages like that will dismantle the master's house, as Audrey Lord says. They're truthful messages, and they see the inherent brilliance of the girl-child. 
They don't contaminate her brilliance. They tell her it's real and that she's got places to go and people to see and teachers to find. So what we've got to do is build these learning communities, these learning systems for women that embody these practices of benevolent, compassionate, challenging accountability and uh, simple, direct language that's willing to deal with all the differences that are present in the group. So when we deal with all the differences that are present from this new mm-hmm. position of this confidence, mm-hmm. um, what are we dealing with? Is that the global issues? Is this the race, racism, homophobia? What, I mean, what, what are we dealing with on that level? Yes. Because in any given women's group that I've ever been in, there's, there are a few visible differences. Most of the differences at the beginning are invisible, and they run very deep. They're ancient, and they do become mythic in that they're archetypal sometimes. They're political. They're religious. They're ethnic. They're spiritual. And they're all hiding behind the, t- the surface conversation. So I think... Uh, these learning modalities, well-led, well-handled, well-trained, really do create a, a sanctuary for a return to a certain kind of truthfulness, internal self-awareness and truthfulness and relatedness that is very healing and ultimately strengthening for an individual woman helps her go out there and feel more confident and more competent. And it also helps as an energetic field to build a grassroots network of women all over a state, say, who believe that each other, that each of us is competent and confident and help us, help each other get more so. I think we've been doing that in Maine for quite a while now, at least in the few little gardens where I work. Um, We are speaking with uh, Alexandra Merrill, and she's been working with uh, women's groups and women's group process and women's leadership programs for many years and uh, has working with diversity. Yes, that's Alexandra. Yes. When you, just as you were talking, I wanted to remember to say something about scapegoats. Oh, please. Yeah. And uh, about the pattern of the scapegoat in an all-female system. This could be a whole other conversation, but I don't want to have us be done without talking about this devastating and lethal pattern that might be a product of this internalized homophobia and heterosexism and misogyny and fear of going towards the difference. So any given group, any given new group is scanning herself, looking around to see who are the popular girls who are the in-girls, who's looking at each other, who, who's known each other from before, and who's definitely out. And there's usually someone who feels definitely out. 
the group herself, she can sense that. She can sense the out feeling, as in exile. So right there can begin this collusion to exile or extrude one woman or two women or three women. And it's going on in a very subtle, elusive, ephemeral undercurrent. And it's probably not usually discussed or brought to the surface. Goes back probably to fourth or fifth grade when somebody was unpopular or popular and when there were cliques. That really has to be excavated. It needs a root canal. <laughs> it needs serious attention right from the beginning and uh, requires a certain form of leadership and holding that is very particular. If that stuff doesn't get addressed, at least on the energetic level, the group will extrude someone. She will leave and say, I can't, I can't, that group isn't safe for me. I can't do my learning there. Or she'll say, uh, well, any number of things. The truth is there was a collaboration slash collusion between the group and that member or those members. They did it together. And the scapegoating is a relational pattern. It takes the group and the individual or the small group to co-create it. It's like the underbelly of the relational field, the scapegoating pattern. And it is ancient and it's archetypal and very complex and difficult and painful and kind of haunts us in the women's communities because of our terrible, terrible history with being scapegoated as women. Is that fear? That we will become the scapegoat or scapegoats in our community and will turn each other over to the dominant culture for because we're women and accused of this, that, or the other. Now, this is global. It's not over. We're still doing scapegoating of girl children, boy children too. I feel really strongly that we have to understand this pattern, which is so toxic to our well-being as collectives of women. We have to interrupt the cycles of jealousy, envy, rivalry, and competition. Go underneath them, dig up those roots, and uh, clean them. Because there's nothing wrong with jealousy, envy, rivalry, and competition. It's, it's a very healthy human process. It's just in the name of what? In the name of fear, in the name of what? Serving a status quo? Or... Yeah. Yeah. And it serves to make each other ill in some way, you know, to yeah. scapegoat, to, to make. Yeah. Well, I have, I've, have plenty of experience volunteering for the scapegoat position in my life, and I have just as much experience being a bully. 
and ganging up. And the degree to which I'm willing to talk about this openly and unpack these events and uh, agree that I'm okay just as I am, this is how I learned to be, that's the degree to which I can sit comfortably in the leadership position. And I, I would pray that any of us who sits there would also be willing to do that. Understand the impact of the scapegoat complex on our leadership. This is a huge topic, and I think we should devote a whole show just to that, because <laughs> this has been wonderful. I think we're at a little bit out of time, although I would love to continue this conversation. Um, we're speaking with Alexandra Merrill. She's been working with women's groups and women's process for over 40 years. She's instrumental in developing programs for women's leadership development and training. She's done this within Maine and uh, in Europe, throughout the United States and South Asia. She also works with diverse groups of women and people all over the world. She's been recognized as a leader by the Maine Women's Fund for her work in Maine at the grassroots level, and she's now a consultant with several leadership collaborations um, throughout the country and in the world. And she's been our guest today on Healthy Options. I'm Rhonda Feynman. I want to thank uh, Petra Hall for engineering and um, everybody, um, at, uh, all the listeners in WERU for having our show here. And uh, I think that's it. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>